Welcome to Mysterious Goings On, the podcast about creativity, writing, and mystery. Every week, we talk about all kinds of great fiction and meet the people who write it. We also feature explorations about creativity in all walks of life. Your host, Alex Greenwood, will join you right after this. Hi, this is Bunyet Ngene, author of The Bodies That Move, and you're listening to Mysterious Goings On. You know, they talk about the great American dream, or maybe it's a myth. I don't know. I don't happen to think it's a myth, but the great American dream of charting your own course, blazing your own trail or simply living life on your own terms. And that, my friends, is what drove me to not walk, but run to schedule an interview with today's guest. I am excited to introduce you to Ed Davis. For the current boom in van life and nomadic living, Ed Davis rode the rails, hopping boxcars and freight trains from Reno to Vancouver through the Sierras and up and down the Golden State. As a young man, he lived on five bucks a day worked as a carny, and even slept under the same bridge Kerouac once did. Living as a part-time hobo, he and his friends, the Knights of the Road, experienced a world that no longer exists. Those treks across the country eventually led Ed to become a successful businessman, a champion discus thrower, oh, and a loving husband to his wife, Jan, who on occasion has even hopped the trains with him. So we're going to talk to him today about his uniquely American experience. Uh, he, he brings with us uh, this latest novel, The Last Professional. It's a compelling story of two men linked by a yearning to explore and experience a simpler way of living. In the vein of Kerouac in London, Davis paints a rich tapestry of life on the move where adventure is truly just a freight car away. Ed Davis, welcome to Mysterious Goings On. Alex, I am thrilled to be here. Really looking forward to talking about writing with you. I got to get at this. What did it for you? What was the first time? Was it a kind of a call of a locomotive as a little boy? What, what, what was it? Well, I, I think I may have train travel in my DNA, but uh, that we'll get to that in a little bit. The first episode, though, came in 1972. A friend and I had been working at Sonoma State Hospital here in uh, Northern California as, as psychiatric technicians. He and I shared in common that neither of us knew our fathers, but he got a lead on his, and he was supposed to be in an island uh, off the coast of Scotland. And so we, we cashed in our chips, we, in those days, you could buy an open-ended ticket from Kennedy to Heathrow that you could use anytime for 200 bucks. And so, okay, we can get to the UK. How are we going to get to Kennedy? Well, we'll hitchhike. You know, it's 1972. Everybody's hitchhiking. No problem. Well, Paul was six foot four. I'm six foot. We were both football players and we had these gigantic backpacks, metal frame backpacks that we bought from the army surplus store. Nobody was stopping to give us a ride. We were too damn big. Um, you know, we just wouldn't fit. And so finally, a guy, I think, was up in Crescent City uh, in a van, pulled over and said, you guys are out of your minds. Nobody's going to give you a lift. You should be riding freight trains. Riding freight trains? That, that's a thing you can do. He had done it. Um, he gave us some pointers. He dropped us off in Eugene, Oregon. Half an hour later, we were on a flat car heading west, wind in our hair, sun on our backs. I was hooked. I never looked back. 
Man, that is just so incredible. That is so incredible. I, I, uh, I, I can just remember growing up where a uh, place uh, and I grew up in Oklahoma and I just remember every night I would hear the horn, you know, uh, and I, you know, you know, what I'm talking about you that you're a little boy and you're all snuggling in your bed and you know, that, that, that horn can be kind of scary when you're little, but as you get older, it's actually like, it's like, to me, it's a call. It's like, you got to get out of here one of these days, boy. And oh, but yeah. I, Never did it the way you did, the way you did. I would, I'd love to ask you about the train hopping, though, a little bit. Now, is it truly a lost art? Is it done? It's still being done. Uh, it's harder and harder than ever. And let's call this the public service portion of this show, which is it is very illegal. It's extremely dangerous. People die all the time doing this, even now. What? Because the trains are very fast. They're faster than they ever were there are very few places to ride and so and they're just unforgiving if you get in the way you just get dead so you know folks at home don't try this if you want to have a vicarious adventure read my book (laughs) but but in answer to your question when i was riding the last of the old-time hobos were still doing it oh wow it's it's a lost era But if you dial back in history a little bit, after the Civil War, going way back, Transcontinental Railroad came in. We've got a country that's been torn apart. Guys coming home from the military, they don't recognize themselves. There's no place for them at home. And suddenly, there was within a few miles of their front door, they could get on a train and go anywhere. It was the equivalent to the internet. Uh, for us 20 years ago. It abolished time and space. And so people took to the road in extraordinary numbers, hundreds of thousands. And so there was, there's this very rich heritage. When I started riding, it was just at the tail end of it. Now there are folks doing it for the adventure, frankly, yeah. with GoPros on. Yeah. I mean, you can go on, you can go on YouTube, you can look up freight hop- hopping. You can find there are a lot of guys who are doing it right. They're being safe. They're being respectful. Uh, they're doing it because of the love of the experience, which I totally understand. So, yeah, it's still being done. But please do not try it if you're listening to this. Yeah, yeah, please don't. Uh, because uh, the Legal Defense Fund alone would break this <laughs> yes. podcast. H.L. Mencken said in the American language, triumphs and hobos are commonly lumped together. But in their, in their own sight, they are sharply differentiated. I'm, I'm bringing this up, by the way, Ed, because you you knew some of these folks. But but he said a hobo or beau is simply a migratory laborer. He he may take some longish holidays, but sooner or later he returns to work. A tramp never works if it can be avoided. He simply travels. Lower than either, he said, is the bum who neither yep. works nor travels, save when impelled by the notion of the police. <laughs> yep. I, I heard I heard first heard a very abbreviated version of that. A hobo works and wonders. A tramp wonders, a bum does neither. But relative to my book, The Last Professional, in this category of hobo, there was a hierarchy. Yeah. And so there were the guys, most people who really did it as a means of getting from job to job. Hobos were journeymen of manual labor. They, they had a lot of skills during tough times. You know, you, this was before the automobile was widely available. So this is how you got around. But for a small subset of them, something about the lifestyle spoke to them. And it's sort of analogous to the guys who 
go surfing every day, even if the waves are bad, the guys who run 50 marathons a year, the guys who walk the Appalachian Trail and the Pacific Crest Trail once a year, they're doing it because it's feeding their soul in a way that nothing else does. The professional hobos were those guys. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and they had a code, didn't they? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You might share a little bit about that. I don't think people really understand this. I think people too easily equip, equivalent, you know, make the equivalency that they were just bums, you know, they're not, but these were, these were dignified, not everybody, but right. by, by and large, dignified gentlemen of the road. Could you tell us a little bit about the code? Sure. Uh, it was, it, like any society, it had a strata. And it, there, were, there were those who lived by the code and those who lived against it, frankly. Um, there was a hobo convention in St. Louis in the late 1880s, 1890s, where they drafted a hobo code of ethics. And it looks remarkably like our own uh, Declaration of Independence. Yeah. It's basically, you know, uh, be respectful, take care of yourself. Don't make, you know, don't make trouble in a town. Another hobo is going to be coming by to help you out. Take care of the kids. Try to get them home. I mean, very simple rules that these guys lived by. They had a network of hobo jungles that were essentially like camps. Every town that had a railroad yard had a hobo jungle. Something that people don't understand today is that at their height, I think I've got the statistic right. 90% of the population of the United States lived within five miles of a train track. That's not true anymore. Hmm. But so every little town had, particularly in the days of steam, they had a railroad track, they had a water tank, and they had a hobo jungle. And the jungles had very strict rules. You know, you left it better than you found it. Um, you would come in and some, you know, there'd be, tin cans washed and hung upside down on the trees so that you could cook. There'd be, people would tell you where you might be able to get a handout in town and where you couldn't. Very, very strict and, but simple rules so that you could come into a town, get a meal, be on your way. Yeah. It, what I was just impressed with too, you know, like you said, you know, uh, try to stay clean and boil up wherever possible. Uh, do not cause problems in a train yard. Another hobo will be coming along who will need passage through that yard, right? Yeah. Just yeah. simple, simple rules. And, and when I was starting to ride, that was, those days were pretty much gone. Hmm. Um, the old guys still adhered to that code, but there were, you know, drugs were becoming really prevalent and there were serial killers riding the rails uh, not long after I was on, and some pretty famous ones, because in this subculture, the law didn't care. See, when you said 1972, particularly the part of the country you're from, I got to be honest, I thought of serial killers because yeah. isn't, I mean, like, uh, you, you weren't right by the Green River or anything. Absolutely. You, but, the Zo oh. well, Zodiac was in our neck of the woods, just down the road. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you know, does it ever occur to you that I, I'm not sure, I'm not saying you, 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 you ever came across them, but that maybe in your travels, you might have come across some, some pretty. Almost certainly. Fortunately, at least when I was traveling, folks tended to keep a fairly respectful distance. If you got in a boxcar and somebody else was in there, you would pretty quickly establish that you weren't a threat to them and they weren't a threat to you. And if it looked like that was the case, you got the hell out. Oh, um, wow. You know, because there was, it was a lawless, it was kind of the Wild West on the rails. There was really no authority 
all the railroad bulls, the railroad police, all they really cared about was protecting railroad property, not protecting you. Yeah. Talk to me about how you got into writing. Uh, It is related to trains, interestingly. Uh, When I took this trip, this first trip I described to you, one of the first tips we got was that riding across the United States was challenging because the, the rail lines go so many different places. So it's really easy to get sidetracked. You can get on a train, you know, midnight thinking you're going to end up 500 miles east and wake up 500 miles south. Um, and so a lot of the guys working in the yards in those days had ridden themselves. Uh, when they were young men. And so you could get advice from them. And the very first advice we got was go to Canada because there's only one set of tracks going east and west. So, I mean, with some exceptions, there's some lines that go up to the, you know, the up north. But mostly if you're on the rails in Canada, you know where you're going. Hmm. And so that's where we went. Um, I was newly in a relationship with Jan, who has been my wife now going on a whole lot of years, which is great. And so I was writing letters to her. I had discovered this new form of travel that just spoke to something in me that I didn't even know existed. And somehow putting those two things together, this new romance, this new way of seeing the world with words in those letters, it just, it was like alchemy. It, it mm. pulled it together for me in a way that said, I want more of this. This is what I should be doing. You know, you, you, there's a lot of uh, uh, your work at Sonoma State Hospital. Um, uh, and, you know, that led to in all things, right? Uh, right. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that. Uh, I had volunteered biology teacher who thought we should expand our horizons. At that time, Sonoma State Hospital was the largest institution for what were then called the mentally retarded in the United States. There were 3,500 residents. Yeah, it was huge. I was, it's something again about it spoke to me. I got out of high school. I'd been a football player and it didn't work out going to play for some of the schools that were interested in me. So instead of going to college, uh, I went to, I, I took a course through the local JC to become a psychiatric technician. And it was an extraordinary experience. The nothing, very little had changed in terms of the care of the mentally retarded for 50 years. So there was a fair amount of it that was pretty medieval. Um, and it, it was just the standard of the time. And some of that I capture in, in all things. Thank goodness it was right at the cusp of when it was changing. Yeah. And by the time the institution closed just a couple of years ago, it, it's, its standard of care was exceptional. It was a model for the rest of the country. Um, but when I was there, it was human warehousing. And uh, yeah. Exactly the word I was getting ready to use. I mean, th- that was, uh, there was, uh, and, and this is my words, not your society's shame. Let's put them away. Let's warehouse them, right? It, it wasn't, was that the case? It, your... was encur- it was encouraged. I mean, and so much has changed. If you had a child with cerebral palsy, in 1950 or 55, quite likely the doctor would say, you know, you can't adequately care for this child. You should give him to the state. Um, And that was done commonly. And yeah, when I was there, uh, they had just passed a law in California that adult residents who could demonstrate that they were competent could apply for self-emancipation 
so that they could apply to get themselves out. And Jan and I helped a couple of people do that. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, yeah, I mean, even President Kennedy had a sister who he never really knew because, isn't that right? Uh, yeah, absolutely true. And of course, I, I kind of left over uh, kind of where you started to yet road stories, of course, right. which was talking about how you caught brains and vagabonded around the Pacific Northwest in Canada. We'll go to the writing part of this, though. Okay. Were you, did you have a notebook on you? Did you, how did you, Always. did you take note? Tell me about that a little bit, would you? Just Always. what was that like? Spiral notebook, final light. Big ball, you could get a great big ballpoint pen for 39 cents that would write anywhere. It would write underwater, I swear to God. And so, yeah, that was the deal. Um, and the last professional actually began in a boxcar outside Watsonville, California one night. Um, and it, I wrote the first lines of it there. So it, I have found that I, it isn't essential for me to travel, to write, but man, when I travel, I want to write. I think that's fascinating. You know, um, now I didn't do what you did, but you know, anytime I go on a vacation or even a business trip, what is that about that? I get jazzed. I want to write. Well, what, what I think's going on is that I don't think, I don't ever think we see ourselves more clearly than when we're against an unfamiliar backdrop. So we're in a new setting. We're in new surroundings. Our awareness is heightened, not only of what's going on around us, if we're writers, because we're always watching but it's like who we get to see ourselves in a different way when yeah. we travel and uh, I, th I think that's i mean i'll write in denny's i'll write in hotel lobbies i'll write that that's i do some of my best work in hotel lobbies you know, uh, a lot of my series takes place in Key West, and it's, it's <laughs> my wife's used to it. I, I'll, I'll walk around with just, it used to be a little recorder. Now you can just use your phone, right? I, I'll just talk into it. And I'll, you know, you know, uh, chickens running past us. So uh, the scooter just went by, you know, all of this stuff. She, 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 but, you know, Key West, nobody looks at you twice because everybody's oh, yeah. weird down there. You know, you would write that. And then uh, I assume you'd get back to home base eventually and you had a typewriter and you'd go at it, right? Yeah, I originally all wrote longhand, and that's a that's doing a disservice to call to longhand, calling what I do longhand. But you know, yellow tablets. For those at home, I'm holding up a yellow tablet. Oh, yep. uh, I should have invested in them 60 years ago. But I I figured out I'm a very fast typist, and I figured out that I needed to learn how to compose a typewriter. So I bought an old IBM Selectric typewriter, Army surplus thing, must have weighed 50 pounds, and it must have been 1979, 1980. I wrote a novel in a week. The novel's gone. I can barely remember what it's like, but I forced myself to compose at the keyboard. And yeah. then, and then I, I've never looked back. And boy, were computers and word processing, processing ever made for me. I mean, oh. You know, poor Kerouac had to tie together teletype paper. And uh, we just, all we have to do is just keep hitting it or <laughs> I, I remember that my, we spoke offline about my grandfather and you mentioned that uh, kindly mentioned about that uh, looking about his book I wrote with him uh, posthumously but anyway I can still remember though towards the end of his life you know he was he uh, he was just always should I get one of those computer things you know <laughs> and and all that so he settled once do you remember Ed you might you'll remember this do you remember the kind of the halfway mark uh, I had one it was a it's an electric typewriter but it had a little green computer screen in it and you oh, can edit it and, and then then you hit print when it's allegedly okay right yeah oh, yeah yeah, yeah my first computer was an Osborne that was advertised as being portable. It was really luggable. It luggable. weighed about 40 pounds <laughs> and, and had a screen that couldn't have been more than five inches diagonal. 
Luggable. I love it. Before we just kind of go on, I ask you all these little silly questions about writing. Oh, they're all let's, good, man. Let's do talk about The Last Professional. This is not, though, folks, this is not nonfiction. Now, it's obviously very well influenced by uh, by Ed's life, but tell us about the book. Tell us what, we should, what we're looking at here. It's, it's a gorgeous book, and it's got illustrations and everything, but please, I'll, I'll let you tell everybody about it. Well, I think that you'll probably chime in here i hope i i think much if not most good fiction is in some way autobiographical Mm -hmm. i think it i think we pull from our experience and so when i wrote this book i was you know 27 28 years old i had fallen in love with the rails and i was looking for a way to capture that uh, and share it. I mean, basically, I just wanted to capture this this life. And so I wrote it very quickly. Um, there are two main characters. There's a young man, Lyndon, who was very much like me, same age, didn't know his father, uh, had been sexually abused as a boy, as I was. Um, so there's there a lot of commonality there. And I think a theme, particularly in a lot of Western literature, is young men looking for their fathers. And so he is sort of looking for that father figure and he finds one in this, the last professional, this old hobo who was near the end of his days. And so really the book is about the young man trying to come to grips with the trauma of his past so he can move forward. And the older man, his mentor, hanging on to what is a vanishing way of life. I didn't know at the time, but I think that's the challenge that every generation faces. I think that Think about us today, socially, are the young people in our generation are trying to come to grips with the traumas and the things we of a society have done in our past. Yeah. The older among us are trying to hang on to the way of life that we remember. And we see it vanishing so much like your grandfather. Do I want one of these computer things? You know, like, uh, I hope I'm not going to get in trouble with anybody who watched the Super Bowl. I had kids who loved the Super Bowl halftime, my children who are now in their 40s, it was great. I was, man, I was reaching for Led Zeppelin, you know, I mean. <laughs> You're in a safe space here, don't worry. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and so I, I think what ends up happening in The Last Professional in terms of thematically is it's young man trying to come to grips with the trauma of his past, older man trying to hang on to the code he's always lived by, and a vanishing way of life and the friendship that develops between them. You know what moves me a lot about your work, your writing, Ed, is you really paint a wonderful picture with, with dialogue. Oh, thank you. I'm partial to that. I write that way myself. I'm just, I don't know. People tell me I kind of write like I'm writing a movie. I don't intend to. I'm not saying you're writing like a movie, but I'm just saying you go through this. And I mean, I, I was, that's, you know, this wonderful stuff, just wonderful little, don't run off. I'm going to say, I'm going to read some of this. Okay. okay. And I'm going to read it out of context, but I just want this. This is great here. Tom, he picked a piece of tobacco off his tongue, took another drag. That guy's so yellow, he wouldn't shoot a can for fear it'd shoot him back. Tom's all wind, he exhaled, squinted at them through the smoke, twisted his nose. Kind of a foul smelling wind, if you know what I mean. Dude, really? <laughs> I mean, you don't even know who that guy is, but you know who that guy is. Thank That's you. Thank it, you. Is, it is throughout. And that's folks, but you can't see it. I'm, I'm like waving the, the book <laughs> around it. Poor Ed. And he's like, calm down. It's all right. But 
it's really it's got these wonderful it's not a graphic novel but the, but it's got like kind of that graphic novel uh, every now and then tell me about that choice was is that a callback to something previous or, or absolutely yeah it, it's as you probably gathered it, the formative novels for me were the great american fiction of 100 years ago so it's Hemingway, it's Steinbeck, it's Fitzgerald, it's Thomas Wolfe, a little later, Harper Lee. It, it's the, those are the people who really spoke to me. Those classic literary novels of the 20s, 30s, and 40s were often illustrated. They weren't heavily illustrated, but there was often a little bit through them. There's a great edition, a Random House edition of Moby Dick that came out in the 1930s, illustrated by Rockwell Kent. And if you can get a copy of it, it's worth it just for the illustrations. They're black and white woodcuts. And it's like, it's like illustrations speak to us. Well, if you think about it, we were communicating in pictures before we were communicating in words. And so they, they get to us in a way that the narrative itself, it complements it. It's a whole different way of accessing the story. And so and I was blessed to find Colin Elgy, who did these illustrations. The guy is outstanding. He really is. He really is. You know, it's, you said woodcuts. It's so, I mean, you know, you just look at that. And it, it's just, to me, that's what it looks like. It, it something out of that, that period. Yeah. And that's, it's, it's elegant and it's, and it's fun. Just a delight. And I, you know, I, I don't often admit this to my guests, but I got this about four days ago so I didn't get to read <laughs> I started and I'm really excited about it but I, Ed, I hope you forgive me but I will read it because I, I think it looks incredible Man, um I'm just I'm, I'm thrilled that you're enjoying it that, that's oh. that's all any writer wants oh with you know when people say that they enjoy, they liked the book or, or liked it or I just say I hope it entertains you that's what I always tell people because that's all I'm trying to do is just you, give you a, a, some moment away from your own life a little bit and Maybe you'll see something in there. But what's this about you uh, uh, taking to the rails, so to speak, on a whistle stop tour? What are you doing? That's going to be so much fun. Uh, the whole month of April, it's um, 15 cities, 30 days, 6,500 miles. Um, wow. And it, I, near as I can tell, nobody's done anything like it for about 100 years. Uh, I'm, I'm really doing everything I can to support local bookstores. Amazon doesn't need my help selling books local bookstores do. And so we're trying to arrange events everywhere we can, where we can draw some attention, not only to the book, but to the bookstore through this unique way of getting out and spreading the word. And for a train, for a story that takes place on the rails, what better way than uh, a book tour on the rails? Man, man, I, I hope Amtrak's giving you a little, little. <laughs> so, well, well, if you have Amtrak on speed dial, please call them. <laughs> I think that we, I think we also need to get uh, CBS Sunday morning on the trail for you too. I think this has got Steve Hartman written all over it, but anyway, this is great. I love this. That's so imaginative, such a creative thing to do and, and such a damn fine thing to do for our independent bookstores who, yeah, they're, they're struggling. They need it. And uh, Mr. Bezos uh, doesn't need another rocket. He can do just fine without that. So uh, yeah. And I encourage everybody to look for the last professional. There'll be uh, links to Ed's website in the show notes and of course go find it if your local bookstore doesn't have it they can order it right amen they can order and i mean i feel like i just scratched the surface with you but i promise i'd only keep you a half hour but uh i tell you what I'd, I'd love to have you back sometime i'd like to I, I don't think we really even got anywhere near as far deep as i wanted to on this i i've enjoyed meeting you and talking to you so much 
It, it would be an absolute pleasure. Maybe we'll do it from uh, midway on the train trip. I'll talk to you from a train station someplace. Wouldn't that be fun? The door is open here, man. I'm telling you, man, if you want to get a little sidetrack there and just uh, take a pause, let me know. I'd love to have you on. We'll talk from there and how it's going on the road. You know, folks, uh, uh, I, I think I, I think I used to think people who, who hop trains were running away from something. But I think Ed's kind of showing me that maybe, no, they're not running away from something. They're actually finding something. It sounds to me, Ed Davis, like you found something on the rails. And I think readers are blessed that you're sharing it with them. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Ed Davis, again, the book is The Last Professional. He's got other works too. Uh, There'll be links in the show notes. Don't hop off that treadmill. Don't stop the car. Don't worry about it. It's going to be in your show notes or it'll be at uh, mgopod.com, but it's at eddavisbooks.com. You can learn a lot more about this gentleman. And I didn't even talk to you about everything he's done, but don't worry. He's already said he's coming back. I've got it on the tape. All right. Again, Ed, thanks so much. And uh, we'll see you on the railroad. You got it. Have you lost your belief in finding a really good mystery thriller? Well, trust me, you've got to have faith. Pilot's faith. Kirkus Review says of the book that Greenwood pulls many tricks from his writer's satchel, has a quirkiness and energy, and snappy, snarky dialogue that keeps things moving briskly. A well-handled mystery with the appropriate twist at the end. Midwest Book Review says newcomers to Pilot will find no barriers to quick immersion in his personality and situation, while prior series readers immediately become involved in another conundrum which tests his skills and the ways in which others view him in his world. Surviving a recent attempt on his life, a weary John Pilot returns to Cross Township, where a bizarre string of shootings has paralyzed the tiny college burg. Pilot joins forces with the law to find out why people are being terrorized in his name and stop it. Unfortunately, when he turns to his family for support, he finds only hardened hearts. People are dying, accusing fingers are being pointed his way, and he has nowhere left to turn. Everything John Pilot believes in, family, sanity, and even himself, are shaken to the core in Pilot's faith. Online Book Club says, It's a gripping and fun story that kept me hooked. Greenwood's writing style is dynamic, and the book reads like a movie script. You can get John Pilot series number eight, Pilot's Faith, exclusively in paperback and ebook on Amazon.com. And remember, in the end, it all comes down to faith. Pilot's Faith. A Caroline Street Press book by J. Alexander Greenwood. Thanks for joining us on Mysterious Goings-On. Be sure to follow Mysterious Goings-On wherever you get your podcast and never miss an episode. Don't forget, you can get the links to books and other things mentioned on the show at mgopod.com. Until next time, keep reading. Hi, I'm Michelle Stinson-Ross, a longtime listener, occasional guest and definite friend of this podcast. I am also the co-founder of Mindful Appy. I'm here today to ask for your help. Mindful Appy is about to launch an academic peer-reviewed study to validate how we measure emotion with emoji. We need the diverse group of 500 participants that are willing to engage with us over the course of five days. If you're interested in participating in the study and helping us by sharing your feelings for science, please visit mindfulappy.com. That's mindful, A-P-P-Y.com.